Hey, welcome to Sunday School. I'm glad you're here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. You're listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. We are the College and 20-somethings ministry of New Life Church. This morning, we're wrapping up this series on the afterlife. And uh, I've heard that this series has been uh, informative, it's been enlightening, it's been insightful. And how many of you guys can say that you've walked away with something that's been uh, changing in the way that you have viewed the afterlife before? Anybody? Anybody? Love it. That's great. Well, uh, this morning we're going to keep at it. We're going to wrap it up. And uh, I want to talk to you guys this morning about the life of the world that's to come. You know, we call it the afterlife, and for us believers, it's just that. It is the afterlife. You know, our future is not one of death or destruction or separation from God, but it is eternal and infinite um, freedom and life and uninhibited relationship with the Lord forever. So, uh, you know, the Bible is explicitly clear that believers— um, have this hope, and the unbelievers don't. You know, it says in John fourteen six that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes through the Father except through me. And so we as believers, we know, yep, we're going to life. We're going to eternity with the Lord forever. But unbelievers don't have this hope. And so um, we as believers, regardless of the sufferings of today— Regardless of the pain we may experience today, regardless of what we go through that may cause us um, difficulty or suffering, we know that in the future and in the life to come, we have life and freedom. And so, uh, you know, this morning, I I guess we could talk about all these like theological and eschatological ideas like the, the dimensions of the New Jerusalem or the river uh, flowing from the temple, you know, found in Ezekiel, or, or even the, the new heavens and the new earth that's found in Revelation. But, um, you know, the afterlife, what we're going to see this morning is biblically, the afterlife was never really used to scratch some sort of curiosity um, for end time stuff. But it was always to bring hope, is what we're going to see, in times of present suffering. And so, before we handle the word of the Lord together, we're going to go through some scriptures, and we're going to study, and we're going to figure out what the Bible really says about the afterlife. But before we go through that, uh, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit for understanding as we handle his word and ask for understanding. So, let's pray together. Holy Spirit of the living God, we welcome you in this place this morning. Oh, you are welcome here, God. We thank you that you're in our midst, and we thank you that you're able to teach us and instruct us on how we should live and what we should look forward to. God, we thank you that we have the Bible, that it is, um, it, it is true, and it is alive, and it stands in veracity, God. It's absolute truth. We thank you for that, that we can go to that and know what is truth. And so this morning we ask for understanding. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word as we talk about the life that is to come and the hope of eternity for us believers, Lord. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Um, Well, some of you might be able to relate to this, but when I was young— uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and so I kind of understood at a young age the basic ideas of the afterlife and heaven and hell. Like, yeah, 
people who believe in Jesus, they go to heaven, and people who don't believe in Jesus go to hell. And just the, these um, core convictions of Christianity pertaining to the life to come. And I grew up in that church. We were raised charismatic, and so we were the church that had, you know, a three-week revival service every year, like that kind of thing, you know? And uh, in church, uh, during normal weeks, every Thursday, every Sunday morning, and every uh, Sunday night. And so as a kid, uh, we were always in the front row, being in church. I, I, I just, I kind of understood the, these core principles. And so with that being said, I would like lay in bed at night and, and think through eternity and this idea of heaven. Like, wow, okay, I'm going to be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. And I remember like little eight-year-old Joshy laying in bed and thinking, okay, like forever with Jesus and, and the streets of gold, and I wonder if there's going to be food in heaven, and I wonder if my um, pet Max, who, who was a German shepherd who just died, I wonder if I'll see him in heaven, and oh, I can't wait because I'm going to snuggle with a panda bear for like 2,000 years. It's going to be so great. Yes. And, and I would think through all these things, and it, and it started off as this like joyful, exciting experience, thinking through the afterlife, but then it quickly became something that brought fear as I began to really think, and my brain would inevitably like hit the ceiling, you know, where we, because we're human, we can't grasp this idea of eternity. And so as a kid, I would lay there and think, wait, wait, forever? Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Oh, I don't know if I'm ready for forever. Wait a minute. Even with Jesus, I love Jesus, but I don't think I'm ready for forever. And so this thing that brought joy in the afterlife quickly became um, anxious and fearful. And I think that that's kind of common. And we see that for centuries, throughout history, um, for years and years and years, there's this universal kind of fear in the afterlife. And people don't really know what it is and don't know what to expect. And then salvation, you know, the soteriology of it all, they're thinking, wait, well, how do I get to heaven, and how do I get to that place, whatever they call it, of paradise forever. And so for centuries, people have universally struggled with this idea of the afterlife. So with that being said, I want to kick it to our first question this morning that I want us to discuss and talk through for a few minutes. And the question is, why do you think so many people through the centuries have feared the idea of the afterlife? Okay? Kind of an interesting question. So uh, go ahead, discuss it in your groups. We're going to chat for a couple minutes, and then we'll pick it right back up. Ready? Go. All right. As you guys wrap up your discussions, I, I was informed that I led you astray in this discussion, and I didn't say, ready, set, discuss. So I plead, discuss. There you go. See, I messed it up a second time. So I, I ask for your forgiveness. Please forgive me, Mill Sunday School. Will you forgive me? Thank you. Thank you very much. And I was told about um, a Dr. Joeism called the Nerd Alert that, that we may just have to throw in in a little bit. So I, I'm new to this whole thing. Give me grace. Thank you. So, so pertaining to this question, um, we had some really good uh, discussions at our table. But I, I think people do tend to fear the unknown. And that, that, was a, that was an idea that was touched on that I was overhearing. But even uh, believers, believers and unbelievers alike, we can all kind of view the afterlife with obscurity a little bit because we don't have all the answers as to what's coming next. Even us believers, though the Bible has 
passages and teaching on the afterlife, we obviously, none of us would say that the Bible holds the complete picture of the afterlife that we know for a fact we're going to step into. Does that make sense? So I, I think even believers have a measure of obscurity when it comes to the afterlife because it's unknown and it's foreign. So really good discussions on that one. Um, it's good, though, because along these lines, the Bible is explicitly clear about some uh, things pertaining to the afterlife. And especially in the New Testament, we find these teachings of the afterlife fairly prevalent uh, in the apostolic writings and in the epistles. And so this morning, we're going to look at three passages, specifically by the Apostle Paul, addressing uh, the church. Now, I think these are pertinent because um, Paul, in many of his writings, I guess excluding Philemon and Titus, he writes to a local congregation or the church at large. Even the book of Romans, he's writing to the Gentile church of Rome. And so Paul addresses local congregations and the big church, as we say in, in the uh, Nicene Creed, the holy Catholic church, the, the universal church body. Um, he addresses the church body, and so therefore I think we have much wisdom to glean being a part of the church body um, that we can read from Paul's writings pertaining uh, to the afterlife. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So you guys can uh, scroll there on your phones, get there in your Bibles, uh, whatever you want to do. But we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Um, the epistle largely cons- uh, comprising, I guess, of him defending his apostolic ministry. Uh, and it's cool because in Second Corinthians, we see a very human side to Paul. In a lot of his writings, we can tend to view Paul, and, and even the Corinthians tended to view Paul as this big old theologian. The, yeah, he's the, he's the guy. We go after him. We follow his teachings. But yet, I think it's interesting. In Second Corinthians, we find a Paul that's a little bit broken and who's struggling because the Corinthians, his church, the people he loves, are rejecting him and claiming, and some false prophets in the church were claiming that he had no apostolic authority whatsoever and that his writings were completely void of um, spirit inspiration. So we're, we're going to see some of that as we read through this. But Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1, we're going to go to verse 4. Here's what it says. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly. I want us to remember that word groan because we're going to come back to that. Desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. And we're going to focus here in verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And so here, Paul addresses a really important idea that is crucial to our understanding of the afterlife and the life to come, and that is suffering. Paul is essentially here, especially in verse 4, telling the Corinthians, look, I know, we're we're burdened. He uses these words, groan, 
burdened, being burdened. It's this idea that in this life we do groan and there is that, oh, why can't things be set right again? Why can't Jesus come already? Why can't we just go into heaven and be fulfilled and be in the presence of God forever? And I'm sure we all uh, to a certain extent, have felt that at some time in our walk with the Lord, that, that, that groaning, that, oh, this is not how it should be. And Paul saying, we're burdened. He's here embracing this idea of suffering and saying that, yes, life sucks sometimes. And yes, we're going through some difficult times, and we're burdened, and this definitely isn't a walk in the park. And he's admitting to the Corinthians the struggle and the suffering that life brings sometimes. But here's an important thing that I want us to catch this morning, and we're going to keep going through this. But here, Paul presents the afterlife and this teaching of the life that's to come through the lens of human suffering. He doesn't just say, you know, the afterlife is going to be great and it's going to be awesome. And he doesn't just talk up the future that's to come. But he very much accepts and embraces this idea of suffering within the context of the afterlife. Pretty interesting. We're going to come back to that. But What's even more important is the, the broader context, the nerd alert, the, the meta context, the overarching um, banner context within this, and that is the Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, just a few verses before this. He just got done telling the Corinthians about his struggles as an apostle. Let me just read a couple of this. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. And then he says that in the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies, but he's talking about the suffering that he goes through as an apostle and how some in the Christian faith experiences their being a witness and being bold and uh, fulfilling the calling of God in their life. But it's within this meta context of suffering that Paul presents this idea of the afterlife. And he does this again in 1 Thessalonians 4, which let's turn to right now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And we're going to go up to 18. And so a little bit of context as you're turning there. The, the Thessalonian church... Uh, many of them were beginning to believe that those who had died before Christ's return would be forgotten and left aside when Christ returned. So essentially, they, they had a misconception and a skewed belief of what the resurrection was going to be like, and that belief led them to assume, wait, well, if, if people died already and Jesus comes back, well, they're dead. They're, they're, just, they're, they're, they're ceasing to exist, therefore God and Jesus will only come back for those who are living here on earth. And this conception brought confusion and it brought uh, uh, some, some torment to their souls because they thought, wait, well, my, my brother and my sister and my dad and my friends, like they're all dead. Well, I'm never going to see him again. Like Jesus isn't returning for them. And it's within this belief that really brought about suffering in the Thessalonians. And within this context, Paul goes to them and presents an idea of the afterlife and the life that's to come. And so let's pick it up in verse 13. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, just a little side note. Us believers, we're going to go through some stuff here on earth. We're going to lose people that we love. Um, We're going to see sickness and disease around us. But yet, 
we have hope, and we don't suffer as those who don't have hope, but there is hope in any suffering that we experience. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And then in verses 16 and 17, he explains the manner in which the Lord will return and the resurrection. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a shout of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, uh, validating the idea that no, 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 the dead aren't done, but the dead are actually going to be raised up first. So you by no means have lost them. You're going to be joined with them, with the Lord forever. Verse 17, and, and those, excuse me, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be always with the Lord. And verse 17 Though there's no uh, word specifically for the rapture in Scripture, many people uh, take verse 17 as, um, a, a, I guess, a validation of the idea of the rapture. Um, you'll never find the word rapture in the Bible, if you've noticed, but uh, a lot of people uh, argue that, no, 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 it's a catching up. The church is going to be caught up with the Lord in the air and then escape the tribulation, and that's how kind of this rapture idea started in the church. But that's not what we're going to focus on. Verse 18, as he wraps this idea up, he says, Therefore comfort one another with these words, implying the suffering that the Thessalonians uh, were, were facing through this belief that the dead weren't going to be resurrected. And so what Paul's saying here, he's addressing this idea and saying that, look, both the living and the dead— are going to be joined up with Jesus for all eternity. And the people who have died right now that you think, you know, are outside of the reach of God, no, 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 they're going to be reunited with us. And we're all going to be caught up together with the Lord in the air and be with him for all of eternity. And again, for the second time, interestingly enough, we see that Paul presents this idea of the life to come through the lens of human suffering. The second time. So, we're going to look at a third time that Paul does this. And if Paul, the Apostle Paul has done this two times and a third time, then it's something to take note of. So we're going to look at our third scripture found in Romans. We're going through a lot of scripture, but man, scripture's great. It's the bomb. Thebomb.com. Those are my kids' ministry phrases coming out. <laughs> Sorry, I need, I need to be more collegiate. It is the... We're, I don't know. I got nothing. I'm not, I'm not even going to attempt it. I'll look stupid. Okay, so verse 18. Here's what it says. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. By the way, if you ever want a good little spiritual shot in the arm, read Romans 8. Man, it is. Oh, it's oozing with, with theology and life and encouragement. It's great. But verse 18, here's what it says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans. We see this word again, the same word that the, the Apostle Paul used in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. And Paul here says that, look, the present suffering that you're facing right now isn't worth comparing. Verse 18, he kicks off this idea with that. It's not worth comparing to the glory which will be revealed in us. Don't even use it in the same sentence. I mean, it is totally night and day different. We suffer here on earth, and we go through some stuff, and the life that's to come isn't worth comparing or using even in the same terms. And then in verse 21 or excuse me, 22, he uses this idea and this illustration of um, childbearing. But before that, he, he's saying that together with all creation, we're groaning. And like I said before, it's this idea that, ah, why can't things be set right again? Why can't things be restored? We're reading stories about Adam and Eve and Eden and how God would freely walk with them in the garden and have conversation with them. And, and there was unbridled, uninhibited communion with the Lord that we don't have today because of the fall and our sin nature. And so all of us, together as the church and all creation, are saying, oh, God, it's that groan, oh, Napoleon Dynamite, oh, God. God, why can't you set things right? But he uses this illustration of childbearing and, and delivery, interestingly enough, to get this point across. And this idea, as, as Brad mentioned before, is really fresh for me because six weeks ago, we just had our first kid. Little Rush, Michael Caldwell, and I'm just going to show you a picture if that's okay. Is that okay? This is him, Little Rush, Michael, for you to ooh and ah over. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, we have signed the Baby Gap model contract. So we're good. He's going to be the breadwinner of our family. But uh, it's interesting because our story was that uh, September 12th, we went into the hospital at 8 a.m. and then left. Well, didn't leave. We stayed for another two days, but had him at 8.02. And so all in all, the labor was 12 hours long. And, uh, and my wife is just, oh gosh, don't remind me of that. That was so painful. So painful. So many tears. But um, it was a 12-hour labor, and, and what was interesting was the slow progression of it all. You know, I think sometimes birth can be quick, but for the most part, births are very slow and very progressive. And it's this kind of, okay, a contraction, here we go, here we go, start pushing. Oh, okay, nope. Five hours go by. Here we go, this has got to be it. Yes, nope. Ah, just want this baby. Come on. But going into the day, I knew that we were going to have a baby by the end of the day. I knew that life was coming forth on the other side, but, and I knew that we were starting, but yet the middle ground, the area in between, the time that it took to actually get there was unknown. And Paul uses the same analogy. You know, people through the centuries have thought that Christ was coming back in their generation. World War II, you got Hitler. You're like, oh, yeah, definitely. This is, he's got to be coming back. This is, this is the Antichrist, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, back in the Roman days, with the time of Paul's writing, they were thinking, okay, Nero, this has got to be the Antichrist. Here we go. And yet, it was a contraction. It was just a quick move and then the slow progression. 
And we, at the end of the age, can look back on history and see that there's been contraction, so to speak, throughout time of, okay, Jesus is coming. Ah, okay. Okay, okay, this is it. This is it. This has got to be it. Oh, man. Okay, we're still waiting for him. And so birth is this slow progression and this gradual pain. And, you know, the pain increases and increases, and it eventually gets to a point where the pain is at an all-time high, and then active labor starts, and then it's pushing, and the, the pain's getting worse and worse and worse, and right at the very tip of the pain, life comes forth, and a baby comes forth. And it's like all that pain and all that suffering didn't really even matter when you were holding a baby in your hands. And it's with this illustration that Paul explains this idea of Christ returning for the second time, which I find interesting. You know, for us believers— we're in a time where we've, like I've said, we've seen the contractions of history. And we've seen, oh, okay, God's got to, Christ has got to return now, right? Okay, well, we're expecting, we're waiting, we're hoping. And going back to the first verse, it's not worth comparing. That life, holding rush, wasn't worth comparing. Well, I didn't push. Okay, so I probably shouldn't say this. I should, I should get JC up on the mic so she can talk. But... The nine months of sickness and throwing up and bad pregnancy and all this stuff wasn't worth comparing to holding little Rush Michael in my arms. And it's within this illustration that Paul um, talks about the afterlife. And we see, again, this suffering theme. This idea that, okay, there's suffering, and yet how do we, um, how do we live with expectation of the hope that we have and the life that's to come through the lens of our current suffering. Um, And so it's that groaning that Paul's addressing, the the groaning of, oh, God, just set things right. Oh, I just, oh, we want to be redeemed. We want to be restored. We want to live in glory. You know, we want to have a baby, as the parallel says. We want to be there, but then yet there's this current suffering. And so... Here again, we see that Paul presents this idea through the lens of human suffering for the third time. And so a big idea thus arises. And we see that Paul wasn't teaching on the afterlife to scratch an eschatological itch of the church. And it wasn't to satisfy end-time curiosity. Kind of interesting how that's pretty prevalent today, huh? And it's really been prevalent throughout time. But Paul wasn't doing that for eschatology's sake, and he wasn't doing it for curiosity's sake, but he was explaining the ideas of the afterlife and the resurrection and the life that's to come because it'll bring hope in times of suffering. Somebody who's suffering and going through something, let's, let's take a, a cancer um, illustration. Somebody has cancer. If you go to that person and say, hey, okay, let's nuance theology together. Let's talk end time stuff. Let's talk about the temple. Ezekiel 37, Valley of Dry Bones. You you ready to get down to it? No, of course not. They're not going to get into that. But if you say, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but what I do know is you know Jesus, and there is life ahead for you, and there is hope ahead for you. And though, you, though they're suffering now, this is not the end of the road. That's going to be impactful, and that's going to bring hope to that person. Well, Paul was doing the exact same thing. And so the core idea that arises here is that time and time again in Scripture, we see writings from the apostles of, of the afterlife to bring hope, not to satisfy curiosity. And the big takeaway is this, is that for believers, the afterlife shouldn't evoke fear, but faith. Like I said before, the afterlife shouldn't be something that we fear 
like people have for the centuries. It shouldn't be something that we even skirt under the rug and say, you know what, I'm going to handle that when I'm 80 or 60 or sometime later in the future when it's comfortable to think about it. It never will be, by the way. But it shouldn't be something that evokes fear and where we're scared of, but it's something that evokes faith, where us as believers say, no, no, the afterlife, why would I be scared of that? I'm going to be with Jesus forever. And not only that, but I'm going to escape the current suffering forever. Revelation, there's a passage that we're going to see in a second, where he wipes every tear from the eye. He, he takes suffering away. He puts death under his feet. He completely redeems humanity And he lives with them forever and ever and ever. That's the hope. That's what Paul was explaining. And so for us believers, it's not not this fearful thing where we think, oh gosh, wait, I, I don't know about the afterlife. That's a little scary. Though it's unknown, yes, it can be a little scary, but we should have faith. We should say, God, yes, I'm escaping suffering. I'm escaping this life. And I'm gonna be in amazing, unbridled relationship with you. And it's out of this that we're to look ahead to the life that's to come and say, though I may suffer today, and though loved ones may have passed away, and though I may be sick, and though I may be struggling financially, and though I may be going through hell on earth right now, and maybe I can't pick my major for the fourth time, been there, God, you are good, and I'm going to be with you forever. And I look ahead. I, I look I put this suffering below, and I look ahead to what's coming. That is what the afterlife teaching is all about. That's the resurrection. That's the life that's to come. Biblically, we see that. That, man, it's though I suffer today, and though there may be hurt tomorrow, forever and ever and ever is awaiting me in the presence of the Almighty God. And we see this. Jesus bringing us into life everlasting and vindication in Revelation 21 which we got a couple more scriptures. This one's amazing, though. Let's go to Revelation 21, verses 4 through 5. This is the one I just alluded to. Here's what it says. And and I want us to read this through the context of our present sufferings. I don't know what we've brought in this morning. All I know is we all have brought in something. None of us come in completely clean-handed and say, you know what? Yeah, I can get a little bit of God, but I think I'm, I think I'm great. Like, I think, I don't think I'm really struggling at all. I mean, some of you may say that, but there's always areas of our heart that God has yet to grip and we need healing in. And so I want us to think through that one practical thing in our lives that this applies to as we read Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. They're dead. They're in the grave, never to be seen again. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write, this is Jesus talking to John, Write, for these words are true and faithful. In verse 4, we see the, the, the effects of the kingdom, I guess, and the effects of the new ev- heavens and the new earth and, and, and what we're truly going to be living in in the life to come. And verse 5 is a, is a divine validation of that, of God saying, yes, write it, for that's true. 
It's not just some fancy idea and, and some, some idea buried in fantasy where we think, okay, yeah, one day that'll happen, and maybe it's true, and maybe it's not. No, the God of the universe says that's true. John, write it. I want my people to know that. And so there's no suffering. There's no pain. There's no hurt. So whatever we carry in life, I know this is a fairly hopeful message, and you know, at times it can be hard to hear because we think, oh God, well, okay, yeah, but that's, that's eternity. That's so far away. What, what the heck? But yet, no, the Bible teaches that it should be our hope and we're to find hope in the afterlife. So regardless of what we go through, regardless of how we suffer today, the conditions, what happens, our hope and our future is the life to come. And it's forever and it's eternity. And it, it's to bring hope in the times that we suffer. So with that, I want to I wanna have one more discussion question, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, and this discussion question that I want us to talk through is this. Why do you think believers generally fear the afterlife, even though we know we're saved? You know, we're talking about the life to come. We're talking about the future. And yet, even still, we can tend to fear it. So why do you think that is? Why do believers generally fear the afterlife even though we know we're saved? Let me get this right. Hold me accountable. Ready, set, discuss. Yes. All right. All right. Well, as we wrap up our discussions, man, the the content of these discussions is so good. Like, I'm so encouraged. Um, I'm going to read one more scripture, and we're going to close. And I would love for us to turn to Revelation 22, verse 20 together. Now these are the final words of God, I want us to realize, to broken and suffering humanity. You know, though, though we're saved, like that question alluded to, we're, we're still broken and we're still suffering. And it's what theologians call the now and the not yet. This idea that, okay, Jesus has come and he's, he's been resurrected and he's saved us but yet they're still suffering, and, and that dissonance that that causes. And so we're living in the now and the not yet. And so it's uh, Christ's words to broken and suffering humanity, the last two verses in all the Bible. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it. Uh, I'm going I'm to say something on it, and then I want us to, to pray these two verses together because it's a declaration from Jesus, but then Paul, or uh, not Paul, excuse me, John, turns it into a prayer Um, for Jesus' coming. So, here's what it says. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming quickly. And Paul, or I keep saying that, John, um, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And what we see here is it's a warning for unbelievers, but an assurance for believers. And that gives us, I guess, uh, ammunition for evangelism, saying, look, this whole book, the Bible, it's true. The story of Jesus, it's true. And there's a side of you that can say, you know what, I know I'm saved, but yet there's a clear warning in Scripture that Jesus is coming back and we've got to be ready. Um, and ultimately it's this. It's our death, our sin, our sufferings of today that we experience big to small, they're all going to be swallowed up by life. Jesus is coming back. Our life 
is ahead. Our life is in the future. Our life brings us hope. And we're going to be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. Just think about that for a second. Let that set in. Our sufferings and our current condition, our fallen nature, is going to be swallowed up by life. No suffering is going to exist in eternity. And that is our future, yet our imminent hope in our times of suffering. You know, God is coming back, and we're going to be with him forever, free of suffering. So let's pray this verse together. I'd like us to read verse 20 and 21 of Revelation 22 out loud, and we're going to turn it into a prayer. Okay? So let's all read this together. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're the best. Oh God, you're amazing. We love you and we love studying your word. And we thank you that this idea of the life to come is for hope's sake. It's for our hope and our salvation. And in our present condition, though we may suffer and though we may experience hell on earth, our hope is rooted in the life that's to come. You're there. No suffering's there. Void of sin and shame and sorrow. We thank you for that hope, God. And I pray that you would implant this truth in us. Would you solidify and cement this idea in us, God, to where we can go through life knowing, no, my hope is in the life to come. My hope and my future is Jesus in eternity forever. We love you, God. We thank you for your word. I thank you for this body. I pray that they would be blessed in all they do this week. God, would you send them out in grace and peace, being vessels and lights to the broken world around them, ministering and witnessing to friends and family. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've been spiritually encouraged by listening to this podcast. More podcasts and information about the College and 20-somethings ministry at New Life Church in Colorado Springs can be found at newlifechurch.org forward slash Sunday School.